You can be found in your place in Ecclesiastes. What is the point? Have you ever asked that question? What's the point? Maybe you've asked that uh, about your job. Gotten frustrated. What's the point? You know, throw your hands up in there. Maybe you've asked that about your golf game. What's the point? Why do I play this game? Right? I've done that. We've asked those questions before, but have you ever asked that about life? Just got to a place where you said, what's the point? You know, usually we're so busy with life that we never stop to ask the deep questions. The hard questions. The introspective questions. The questions that really define why you do what you do. In Ecclesiastes, this book we're starting today is a book of the Bible that makes you stop and ask the hard questions. It's a big pause button in the middle of your Bible to say stop and think for a second. It's been called the why of the Bible. And if it's the question, someone said Jesus is the answer, but it takes us a while to really get there in Ecclesiastes. It's really one of those books, it's a more difficult book, it's probably the hardest book, maybe one of the hardest, if not the hardest book in the Bible, the Old Testament especially, to interpret. Uh, you can go buy five commentaries on Ecclesiastes and get five different viewpoints and four of them think the other guy's an idiot, right? And so that's just kind of the nature of this book. It's, it's not a book that you can just kind of quickly glance at. And if you don't read it cover to cover, you'll never really understand what it's about. And so it's really a book, like all of them, but it's meant to be read in its entirety. It's a part of what we call wisdom literature in the Bible, like Proverbs or Song of Solomon, Job, books like that. The purpose is to help us. There's something in it to help us to live more wisely. And so we're calling this series Chasing the Wind. That is a theme in the NIV, or excuse me, the, the ESV that we use here. It calls it, it translates it striving after the wind. Other translations say chasing the wind. And, and that's one of the common phrases that we'll see throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. And we'll talk about what that means as we get into the message this morning. There's something in this message, whether you are a long-time believer or whether you're not a believer at all, there's something in this message for you this morning. If you're not a Christian today and you are just here visiting or checking things out or because someone invited you, this book is going to expose every wound before it finally supplies you any medicine. It will challenge whatever your view of life is, every ism under the sun that you can think of, atheism, secularism, agnosticism, everything you can say, of, it's going to bring it all together and it's just going to blow it up. That's kind of the point of this book. And if you're a believer here this morning, this book is going to challenge you not to slip into an old way of living and to constantly be checking to make sure you're living for what matters most and living as if life really does matter. And we all have patterns and habits that we have to check. And so, really the best way to begin this book is to just start reading. And so what we're going to do is we're going to read the first chapter this morning. We're going to cover the first chapter. And we'll typically cover this book in large chunks. Uh, and and it's, it's a, because it's a, a proverbial kind of book with lots of proverbs in it, it tends to repeat itself. And so there are things that we'll see today that you'll see again next week, and then you'll see again the next week. Just kind of like if you were reading Proverbs, you'd see some things repeating themselves. So let's read Ecclesiastes chapter 1, starting in verse 1 all the way through verse 18. Let's read together. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north, and around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. 
To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness, and man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, See, this is new. It is already, it has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. Verse 12, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge, and I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. We get an understanding in the first chapter of Ecclesiastes of what this book is really going to be about. We can feel the author's frustration. It's kind of depressing as you read the book, read the chapter. And we see that he's going on a search to make sense of life and he's not liking what he's finding. Have you ever wondered what he wonders in verse 3 of chapter 1? What does man gain by all the toil? All the hard labor? All the hard work? Ever been frustrated with life? Wondered what's the point? Have you ever wondered... Why is the world so messed up? If so, this is a book for you. Today, we're going to search and try to find the reason for vanity under the sun and how to find purpose and meaning, making the most of what this book is going to tell us is our fleeting lives in this broken world. In verse 1, he says, The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. So the first question we ask when we come to a book like this is who wrote it? Helps to understand that. It says it's the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. The word preacher in the Greek is a word, it's very hard to translate. There's a few words like that in this book, and it's a kohelet, koheleth, can be pronounced either way. And it can mean a speaker in an assembly, someone who's over an assembly, like a preacher who gets up and preaches to an assembly of people, and that's what we see here. And Jewish and Christian tradition has held that Solomon is the author of this book. This is due to the fact that he was literally the son of David, as it says in verse 1, the son of David, and he was king in Jerusalem. And other keys in the text point to Solomon, such as his acquiring great wisdom, as we saw at the end of the chapter. The search that he's going to go on in chapter 2 sounds awful lot like Solomon. And the Bible teaches in the Old Testament that Solomon was other than Jesus, who, who, who was born of a virgin later on, was the wisest man to ever live. And he asked God for wisdom to govern his people. God said, what do you want? Just ask for anything. And Solomon says, I would like wisdom to govern your great people. And God granted it. And with that, he got wealth and power and all those things. But he didn't ask for that. He asked for wisdom. But the Bible makes clear that this wisest man to ever live, Solomon actually wandered from the Lord and made some very ungodly choices. And tradition is held that if Solomon wrote the book, he likely wrote it at the end of his life reflecting back over his life and trying to help 
younger folks not make some of the mistakes he made. This book, especially as you get to the end of it, has a lot to say to younger people. And it doesn't really define what younger means, but his point is, as an older gentleman, he's basically trying to spare you some heartache, spare you some trouble. There's something in it for all of us, but the point of the book is, the sooner in life you get the meaning of this book, the better it's going to go for you in life. But it's important to note as we come to this book that the Bible and the text never says Solomon wrote it. In fact, the Hebrew that it's written in, and certain passages can lead many conservative commentators to believe that someone other than Solomon likely wrote it. Even though many of these people who would say someone other than Solomon might have wrote this book believe that the author likely had Solomon in mind as sort of a character in the whole book or at least the first two chapters for us to be thinking of kind of a super Solomon. And so I don't really have a dogmatic view on this. It's really honestly, we, since the Bible doesn't come out and say you can't really be dogmatic. You can be. You're probably just being stubborn um, if you are because it just doesn't tell us. Point Every other book Solomon wrote, he points out that Solomon's name is in it. But he very likely could have wrote this book and it's possible that he didn't. So what do we do? Well, it's important in situations like this. Kind of like when you come to a book like Hebrews, which is even more difficult to figure out. It's important to understand that it's not so important who wrote it as what God is trying to say to us through the book. It doesn't really matter who wrote it in the end. What matters is what does it say and what is God saying to us in this book because the bottom line is God wrote the book. So today I want to show you something as we kind of open up this book really in this introduction message. Uh, we're going to see that he's going to state the problem, sort of his thesis, the, the, the problem he sees as he looks at the world and then he's going to begin to just unload proof to back up what he sees as the problem. So what's the problem? The problem is in verse 2. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. If you could sum up his viewpoint right here in the three words, it's all is vanity. And the key word in the book, to understand Hebrews, you have to dig into this word a little bit. Because it's used like 30 times or something like that through the book. And it's that word translated in the ESV and many translations, vanity. If you have an NIV this morning, it translates it meaningless. It's the Hebrew word Havel. We would spell it H-E-B-E-L, but you would pronounce it Havel. And the NIV translates it, like I said, meaningless, but the other translations typically translate, as we translate it here, in the, the ESV translates it as vanity. So what does it mean? The word literally means vapor. It literally means a breath. And so when you see that word, that's what it literally means. And it's used throughout the Old Testament and other places as well. And the difficulty thing, it's one of the hardest words in the Old Testament to translate. And it's the key word to understanding Ecclesiastes and wrapping your mind around it. And that's what makes Ecclesiastes difficult is because the Hebrew word that linchpins it all together is a difficult word for us to translate it in our language. Because it can actually mean like five different things. And so some people take a view that it always means this or it always means this in Ecclesiastes. I take the view, as many do, that it can be translated in many different ways depending on context within the book. And that's what makes it sort of difficult. It's a complex word that can mean different things depending on the context when he says vapor or breath. Let me give you some of the ways that it's used. It can mean fleeting. Like a vapor. Like a breath. It's passing away. It's here, it's gone. The, the form of this present world, the Bible teaches us, is passing away. It's fleeting right before our eyes. Life is but a vapor. It's here today, gone tomorrow. It can mean pointless or meaningless, hollow, nothing there in the end. There's no satisfaction. Just what's the point, as we said? It can mean vapid or empty, dull and boring. It can also mean inscrutable and incomprehensible. In other words, I just can't wrap my mind around it. There's no way to untie this knot and figure it out. 
And it can mean just absolutely absurd. This makes no sense. It's absurd. And at different points in Ecclesiastes, you see shades of these things where one translation makes more sense than the other. Dwayne Garrett, writer of the New American Commentary, sums it up nicely when he defines the word. He says, quote, Everything is transitory and therefore of no lasting value. People are caught in the trap of the absurd and pursue empty pleasures and they build their lives on lies. And that is the heart of what this writer wants us to understand in this book. Another phrase found is the one we mentioned, striving after the wind, chasing the wind in verse 14. As one author said, even if you could catch the wind, what would you have? (laughs) If you could bottle it up, what would you have? In a fallen world, fallen man runs about seeking meaning and fulfillment. And it's like a man trying to catch the wind. It's frustrating, empty, pointless. It's like you're chasing an illusion. And at this point, some of you may be thinking, Pastor, is this really how we want to spend the summer on Sundays? (laughs) We're worried about you if this is what you're going to be studying all week. Are you concerned for this author, Solomon, or whoever it may have been? Are you wondering who broke this guy's heart? This is like a 12-chapter country song. I'm concerned about this guy. I should note, I remember years ago, and I don't remember where I heard it. And to be honest, I can't really say that it's true other than I heard it, and so I'm going to repeat it, is that, uh, that Marilyn Manson had said at one point that this was his favorite book of the Bible. Um, you remember Marilyn Manson? Yeah, that guy. Uh, that guy. Uh, if you don't remember, no worry. Google it later and uh, be prepared. Um, you know, some people really don't like this book. It's very possible that you've never even heard this book, maybe other than a sermon here or there. We'll, we'll read chapter 3 at a funeral. We'll, we'll, we'll preach chapter 11 or 12 at, at graduation ceremonies or something like that. But you don't really tend to study it all the way through. And that's really a shame because in our culture, this book really has a lot to say. And here's why people do not like this book. It's because it is realistic. And we don't like realistic. You know... You can't read this book and think you're the most important person on the planet. Every politician that says they're the only ones that can fix something, every time an artist says they've created the best thing ever, every time an innovator says they've changed the world, they should have to sit down in a room by themselves and read this book for an hour. It's a humbling book. In acting, they have what they call the fourth wall. Familiar with that term? So if we had a stage up here we're putting on a play this morning, you've got three walls and the fourth wall would be between the stage and between you, the audience. And actors are not supposed to break the fourth wall. In other words, your phone goes off and I'm up here acting in a play. I'm not supposed to look out there and wonder where that came from. If I'm being recorded for TV, I'm not supposed to make direct eye contact with the camera. Why is that? Because it lets the audience, it reminds the audience that I'm just one of you and at the end of the day, this we're all pretending up here that this is just a play. This isn't really 16th century London. It's a play. It's pretend time. It pops the bubble. It ruins the illusion. And Ecclesiastes is a big pen and your life is a big bubble and this author is going to take it and he's going to jab it. That's the whole point of the book is to burst the bubble. He is kicking down a fourth wall. So why is he so frustrated? What's the problem? What's the root of this? Why is he screaming, vanity, vanity? Why is he so frustrated? The fall. This is a post-Genesis chapter 3 book. We know Genesis chapter 3, when the fruit was eaten, when man rebelled against God, when man decided, you know what, I want to be like God. In fact, I would like to be God, and I would like to unseat God and be my own God. And ever since then, the world's been broken in a mess and living under the curse. Because God said so, you right? 
And this book, in a sense, is like, it's not really a poem, there's poetry in it, but it's like poetry, it's like, it's a wisdom book rooted in the fall. It's, it's expressing, it's, it's a 12 chapter country song on life in effect under the fall. In fact, in the New Testament, Romans chapter 8, the Apostle Paul uses the Greek equivalent of this word Havel. You see, in, in, in the Greek Bible, Right, the Greek translation of the Old Testament that they had, they had to translate from the Hebrew to the Greek. And the same word that they used to describe this Hebrew word in the Greek is the same word that Paul used in Romans chapter 8 when he wrote this. For the creation was subjected to futility, is the word that he uses, or we use in our English language. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So Paul, describing creation in effect because of the fall, right, calls it being subjected to futility. And many people believe, and I tend to agree with this, that Paul is thinking about Ecclesiastes when he writes that. Because it's in his, the Greek Bible, it was the same, the Greek Old Testament, it was the same word. And it's a word that's used throughout Ecclesiastes. In chapter 1, verse 20, Paul says, although they knew God, talking about fallen man. They did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking. There's that word again. And their foolish hearts were darkened. So the point that this writer wants us to see is this world is filled with brokenness due to the effects of sin and people and creation are broken and separated from a right relationship with God and in need of rescuing and being made brand new again. That's the story of the Bible. And that is the lens through which Ecclesiastes is written. So what's his proof? That's his point. What's his proof? That's his problem. What's his proof? He says all is vanity. Then he sets to prove his case. Author Derek Kidner writes, he is demolishing to build. He's going to give us tons of proof to just blow up every kind of worldview so he can build the proper one. He's exposing vanity to show us where purpose can really be found. He's exposing meaningless. He's exposing the difficulties. He's exposing this broke world because he wants us to figure out well, how do you find meaning and purpose? And how do you find satisfaction? And how do you make the most of life? And how do you live your life in a fleeting world? And the first piece of proof he wants us to look at as he tears this whole vanity thing, as he brings it down on top of our heads, is he says, look at man, in verse 3 and 4. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Generation goes, generation comes, earth remains forever. That word gain or profit, maybe in your translation, is another word used throughout the book. He wants us to wonder at the end of the day, what do you get from all your work? You say, what do you mean? I get money. So I get shelter, and I get food, and I get clothes. But his point is, yeah, and then you die and someone else gets it. So what do you really have? His point is work for the sake of work, and work simply for what you can gain under the sun seems to be vanity. You know, Arnold Schwarzenegger has a quote that he's known for. I don't really know... um, it's all over the internet that this is attributed to him. So let me read you the quote and uh, it, he can correct me if it's not him that said it. Um, for me, life is continuously being hungry. The meaning of life is not simply to exist, to survive, but to move ahead, to go up, to achieve, to conquer. I wanted to read that in Arnold's voice, but I was chicken. <laughs> The writer says to Arnold and to us, conquer what? What's the point? What do you gain? You can't conquer life. Life is fleeting. You're going to die. It's going to slip through your hands. 
He says, all this toil at which he toils under the sun. And that phrase, under the sun, is another key phrase throughout the book. It's a key phrase. It refers to everyday life in a fallen world. It's, it's life from man's vantage point. Life, as one person said, at ground level, in a broken, messed up world, looking around life on earth, in everyday life, in a broken world, that's life under the sun. From an earthly perspective. He says, generations come and go. People live and die, he says, but the earth continues to spin. Life goes on. He says, you can't master life. You can't conquer life. You can't grab a hold of life. You can't take the bull by the horns. It's going to whip you every time. And then he says, hey man, don't just look at man, but look at nature. Look at verses 5-7. through seven. Sun rises, sun goes down, it hastens to the place where it rises, wind's blowing, streams are flowing. He just kind of goes through the, the order of nature and how there is an order to it. Because the Creator has created it that way. He says, look at the sun going up and down every day. He just kind of shrugs at it. He's not impressed, is he? He's not impressed by sunrises and sunsets. He's like, I can see it tomorrow maybe. You know, I've seen it before. I'll just sleep in. Says the wind blowing, it just blows around, doing its thing, continually blows, blows, blows. There'll be wind tomorrow. Streams to the seas, look at the water flowing to the sea, but it never fills up, blah, blah, blah. He's just bored with it. Do you see that? He's like, he's just bored. He's like, what's the point? Then in verse 8, all things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. The idea seems to be everything is wearing itself out doing what it's doing. Man and creation must be exhausted from just going on and on in monotony. People, creation, it's all exhausting itself. He looks at it and says, we simply can't understand it all. In the end, this world does not satisfy. Eyes are not satisfied with seeing. The ears not filled with hearing. It's almost like you can hear him screaming, is this all there is? Is this it? And then in verses 9 through 11, what has been is what will be. What has been done is what will be done. And there's nothing new under the sun. Is there anything new? Is there anything you can look at and say it's new? There's no remembrance of former things. No remembrance of later things to come after. There's nothing new, he says. He's not denying innovation. He's not saying they had an iPhone back in his day. His point is, he's making the point that humanity keeps spinning its wheels in a sinful rut. The same things that motivate and entrap and trip up humanity now have been doing it since the beginning. At the end of the day, he's saying the more things change, the more they stay the same. Is really what he's driving at. People today are seeking the same things people were seeking 3,000 years ago and coming up just as empty-handed but with fancier things to show for it. You live, you die, he says, and nobody remembers you. There's no remembrance. So that's not true. We remember people. How many of you could tell me right off the bat the name of your great-great-great-grandfather? we got cousins we don't know. Right? You say, well, we remember George Washington and Abraham Lincoln and Martin Luther King Jr. And you know what? That is a fraction, a slither. That is not the norm. And when's the last time you thought about one of those guys? Did you get up this morning and think, man, I'm so happy. I'm, I'm glad there was a George Washington. No, you didn't even think about him today until I mentioned. Now you won't be able to stop thinking about him all day. You think about him on President's Day. Right? You think about him when you pull out a dollar bill. That's his point. People move on with life. And they die. And the next group comes along and then they move on with life and then they die. He says, look at man, look at creation and its order and how things work. And then he says, look at my own personal experience. Verse 12, I, the preacher, I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that's done under heaven. It's unhappy business. 
He says, I've, I've went looking. I'm the wisest man. I've went looking. And you know what? You're not going to like what I found. It's an unhappy business. That's how he sees life in a fallen world. Remember, his words here may be what is being invoked by Paul in Romans 8. The creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. So, when he says it's an unhappy business that God has given, uh, caused man, given man to be busy with, some people look at that and they think, wow, he is just really a skeptic, you know. They look at this guy and they say, he's just really just this hopeless case. And some people interpret the book that way. I don't think that's the case at all. He understands that God is sovereign and, and that there is man sinned, and God said when man sins, there's going to be a curse. And then when man sinned, who pronounced the curse? God. His sovereignty over this is what he's pointing to. He knows that sin brought the curse just as God said it would. He sees the effects of the fall and he says it's an unhappy business. It's an unhappy business. It's miserable, this world. What is crooked cannot be made straight. What is lacking cannot be counted. He says, I applied my heart to wisdom and my, dis- my discovery is this. Some things just can't be figured out in this world. You can't make sense of everything. So stop trying to be God. That's been your problem since creation, since the fall. You've been trying to be God. Stop. You can't figure everything out. You can't lasso life and, and, ma- and master it. Commentator Ian Proven writes, there is a human insistence that the impossible can in fact be achieved. That what God has made crooked or twisted can indeed be made straight by human mortal effort. It is all futile. For God is God and the world is the way it is. It's realism. Man's basic rebellion was trying to be like God. And Ecclesiastes is a reminder that you are not Him. That you will never be God, and if you live life like you are God and try to play the role of God in your life, in the end, you're going to be miserable and destroyed. Verses 16-18, through He says, I applied to no wisdom and madness and folly, and it was all striving after the wind. No ultimate satisfaction there. And He gives a proverb in verse 18. It points to a truth that gaining wisdom is hard, and the more you know, the more you know. In other words... Here is a man that was given great wisdom. And on the other side of it, he says, you know what, I, I became sad because the better I understood things, the, the more I understood just how broken everything is. He who increases knowledge increases sorrow, he says in verse 18. The more I dug, the more I realized how dry the well was. Ecclesiastes is a book about the reality of a broken world seen from ground level. It's meant to show us how broken we and the world we live in are and how ultimately if we want to pursue life under the sun and we want meaning and purpose in life under the sun, we have to look above the sun. We have to look to the Creator of the sun. The hint for the whole book of where he's going is in chapter 1. He mentions God one time. It's an unhappy business that God has given. He's telling us where he's going. Now, he's going to take us through some muddy, bumpy, dark, scary roads. But he's going to God. That's where he's going to take us. And he doesn't want us to leave with something else. This weekend, Christy and I were over and we went to Mount Dora. And while we were there, we went to this little restaurant downtown, this Cuban restaurant. And we sat down, we're going through the menu, we've never been there, going through the menu, trying to figure out what to eat. And I'm looking and I see, well, it's a Cuban restaurant, they have a Cuban sandwich. No, they're kind of known for that. 
so the waitress comes by and I'm asking her, what would you recommend? I said, what about this Cuban sandwich? And she kind of looks at me. She's like, I tell people, if you come here, don't get a sandwich. Like we've got a ton of good food. Don't, don't waste your order. Don't waste your money. Don't waste your time on on the sandwich. Like you can make a Cuban sandwich at home. I think it's kind of like her point. Like don't like get get something else. You know, don't do that. You got a lunch menu here. They're all kind of the same price. Don't don't waste your time. She just kind of seemed like what she wanted to like. Don't do that. You know, like she was sad for me if I ordered the sandwich. So I didn't order the sandwich. My goodness, I ordered the masitas. I think that's how you say it. I don't know. It was good. Don't come to Ecclesiastes and get depressed. That's not the point of the book. Don't come to Ecclesiastes and just get an understanding that the world is broken. That's not the point. You come to Ecclesiastes and if you hang into it and you come through the other side, you get God. That, that's what you come to that's what you come to God's word for is for God and Ecclesiastes is not some weird book that's displaced and ended up in the Bible somehow that takes you somewhere other than God it takes you to him that's who it wants to reveal to you that's who it wants to pull you towards that's where this book is leading so what are our takeaways what do we want to learn from this book over the next several weeks let me give you two just two takeaways this morning number one I'm hoping and I that this book changes how you see life your perspective, how you see life. That we begin to understand, if you're a Christian, we've got to increasingly learn to view the world through a Genesis 3 mindset. It's broken due to sin. Its only hope is the one God promised to send, and that is the conqueror, the the one who would come in Genesis 3.15 and crush the head of the serpent. We need to learn to view life through the proper lens of the fall and of God's plan for the world. The world is broken. People are lost. That's why they do bad things. Okay? I want you to be less shocked when sinful people do sinful things when you read this book. I want you to look at our cultural landscape and the decay all that's around and be a little less surprised. In the religious landscape, and you see more and more supposedly Bible-believing people go the way of Cain. Go the way of the other side of the fence, so to speak, and behave as unbelievers and believe things that aren't true and twist and distort God's Word and realize this is a broken world. I want you to look at our political landscape and the mess we're in in our nation and nations around the world and understand the world is a broken place. And I want you to look at your personal life and the brokenness and the pain that you've experienced, will experience, and are experiencing. And know this world is broken. It's messed up. And I want you to understand life is fleeting. It's transitory. It's transient. It's passing away. It's a vapor. It's fragile. Your life is passing you by. Your neighbor's life is passing them by. Your co-workers, your family members' lives are passing them by. Death is certain. And we spend our lives pretending it's not true. Until many times it's too late. Certain things in life change the way you view things. You get married. You begin to view things differently. You have kids. You begin to view things differently. Hopefully, these things make you less selfish because they do expose your selfishness. Right? You understand more and more how selfish you are as more people are added into your life and then you begin to realize that. It changes the way you view things and how you view yourself and how you view the world around you. And understanding what happened at the fall and understanding what He wants us to see here in Ecclesiastes will help us view life differently. It should change the way we view things. I want you to not be able to unsee Ecclesiastes. I want you to not be able to unsee the fall. How do you interpret and see life? Do you live and seem to be one with a biblical worldview? 
Are you surprised when non-Christians do non-Christian things? Are you holding to some non-Christian views? I don't know. But allow God. Ask God to speak to you. Maybe He's already challenging you this morning. The world is broken. Life is fleeting. Number two, how are you going to live life? Let it, let it challenge how you view life. Let it challenge how you live life. Ecclesiastes shows us the vanity of life. When you go looking for weight in life, meaning in life, glory in life, hope in life, within the things of this world that are under the sun, it will show you the only way to live is with life is with the one who is above the sun, the one who is beyond the sun, with God at the center of your life. Life is fleeting and fragile and complicated. <laughs> Full of pain and hurt, broken dreams. And we tend to live our lives based off lies. That hope and meaning can be found somewhere other than God. And it can't be. And this book is proof. It shows us that. This chapter shows us that. And I hope this book presses you to live two ways. That you'll be God-centered. If you're at this, God will be at the center of your life instead of you. If, if you're at the center of your life, then you're in for a rude awakening one day. If your family's at the center of your life, if your job's at the center of your life, if your talent's at the accumulation of wealth and power, pleasure, if those things are at the center of your life, you're in for a rude awakening one day. When we start asking God to make appointments, instead of orienting our life around Him, we're on the wrong road. If your life feels empty today, if it feels disappointing, this book is a call for you to look up. And I wanted to make you, encourage you to live purposeful. Either nothing matters, it's all vanity, or everything matters. The difference is whether there is a God or not. And whether you live in light of this reality or not. And whether you have been reconciled to Him through His Son Jesus or not. That will determine whether you live life full, filled with purpose or emptiness. In church, the world needs to see a people living as though there is something that gives meaning and purpose to life that is beyond the things of this world. They don't need to look at us and say, you know, they, their, their meaning and purpose in life is in their health. It's in their resources. It's in their job. It's in their family. It's in this relationship. It's in this marriage. It's in this and it's this. Just like mine is. And when their world crumbles and falls apart, they fall apart and disappear just like I would. Now they need to see that our hope is in something, is in someone beyond. Pastor Matt Chandler out in Dallas, Texas called this Living with the Sixth Sense. You remember that movie, The Sixth Sense? Years ago? I see dead people. That movie. He's not talking about that though. But in that movie, right, the kid can see dead people. The sixth sense, beyond what you can taste and see and feel and all those sort of things. And in a sense, Ecclesiastes urges us to look beyond what you can taste and what you can feel and what you can see and what you can hear. And we have to understand that we're created to know God. And we're created to live in the light of His presence and live under His authority. If you do not know God today, you will not find lasting hope in the things of this world. A life of purpose is only found in the will of the Creator. Many years after Ecclesiastes was written, another son of David was born. The true king of Jerusalem, of Israel, of the world. But he wasn't treated like a king. In fact, those that were in power in Jerusalem rejected him. And he was beaten and spit upon and crucified. The one through whom all of creation, all things was made, Ecclesiastes, excuse me, Colossians tells us, 
Everything that was made that was made was made through Him, Jesus, came into a broken world subjected to futility and vanity. A world full of people crying out, vanity, everything is vanity. And He went to a cross and He bore your sin and He bore my sin and He endured the wrath of God as though He was a sinner even though He wasn't so we can have the blessing and the pleasure and the favor of God bestowed on us and treated like we're not sinners even though we are to restore what's been broken in the world from the fall, to restore what's been broken between us and between God. And the king in chapter 1 tells you there's nothing new under the sun. And then Jesus Christ comes in the New Testament, the King of glory, and He says, I've come to make all things new. I've come to make you new. And Paul tells us that everybody who comes to faith in Christ is a a new creation. The Bible even tells us in the long run He's creating a new heaven and a new earth. The only thing new that's found is found in Jesus. The world is broken. You're broken. I'm broken. And we need a reconciler, a savior, a repairer of the brokenness. Do you know Jesus? Have you trusted Jesus? Is He the meaning of your life? Is He the foundation in your life? You know, Jesus said these words that sound very similar to the writer of Ecclesiastes. In Mark chapter 8, verse 36. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? That sounds a lot like chapter 1. That's what he's asking. If you get it all, what do you really have? And Jesus is saying, if you get it all, what do you really have? If you forfeit the one thing that matters most, you, your soul, if it's lost for eternity, what have you got? There's no true and lasting prophet to be found in this world apart from Jesus. If Jesus is alive, everything matters. Everything matters.